0: This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Ellen Zunon of Gilderland. She was brought up on stories of her Dutch ancestors. Her father's side of the family goes back to Cornelis van Slyke, who came to Fort Orange, now Albany, from the Netherlands in 1634. He married a Mohawk woman. Bridging two worlds, their daughters became interpreters. A son founded Schenectady Village in 1661. In her own life, Zunan has bridged two worlds, too. As a student majoring in French at the University of Albany, she joined the French club where she met Dennis Zunan, a student from the Ivory Coast in Africa, who became her husband. Living in two cultures gives you a broader view of the world, says Zunan. It makes you less judgmental of other cultures. Alan used to do these incredibly thoughtful Personal feature stories for us. Welcome, Ellen. Oh, well, thank you, Melissa. I'm so glad to be speaking with you again. Yes. Well, the reason Ellen came into my orbit again is I got a notice from the Gilderland Public Library and the Gilderland Historical Society that she is going to be leading a journey into Mohawk country back in the 1600s. And I just would like to find out, first of all, Ellen, how you got interested in this journal, this account from 1634. Well, uh,
1: I've had an interest in the Dutch colonial period, actually, since my childhood, when um, my father was from the Mohawk Valley in the, the village of Fort Plain. And his sisters, uh, did a lot of genealogical research way back in the 1960s and traced our ancestry back to, um, a Dutchman, um, named Cornelis van Slyk, who arrived here in, um, in what was then New Netherland in 1634. I think shortly after this, uh, trip took place then um so i was kind of brought up on stories of this dutch ancestor who married a mohawk indian princess well i'm not so sure about the princess part but but yes we have uh um my family and my father's side has ancestry going way back into this period and so um a number of years ago probably i think in 2009 which was the Hudson uh, Quadricentennial. I joined the Dutch Settler Society, which is based here in Albany. And so I uh, renewed my interest in that period. And um, now, actually, I'm also a trustee of the New Netherland Institute. So I I keep uh, my interest in all that um, history quite active then. So this particular story, though, it's about um, three young Dutchmen who left what was then um, Fort Orange here in the Albany area. And they traveled west into the Mohawk Valley, about 100 miles west of here, to investigate what was going on with the beaver trade. Because um, it seemed as though there was some problem and maybe the French or the English were trying to kind of horn in on that, the Dutch Uh, beaver trade so um, it's a it's a journal then that was written by one of these three young men and um, and it it presents an interesting um, eyeball into the the culture of both the Native Americans and the Dutch people here in that era and actually, I already did give this presentation last November for the Dutch Settler Society. And that, And now I was uh, very happy to be invited to do the, same, the presentation again through the Gilderland Public Library, which will this will take place Wednesday, March 10th, uh,
0: at, in the evening then. So before we delve into hearing about this young man's journey, and I seem to remember he was a barber and a surgeon and also a very good writer, but I'd just like to hear a little about the two organizations you mentioned in case people aren't familiar with the Dutch Settlers Society or with the New Netherlands Institute. So if you could just give us kind of a little sketch of each of those, I think that would be really worthwhile.
1: Okay, well, the uh, Dutch Settler's Society was founded here in Albany in 1924. So we're looking forward to our centennial in in a few years. And that was um, in the era of renewing an interest in the Dutch colonial era and there was uh, some kind of a celebration in Albany in nineteen twenty four about the um, the founding of uh, Beverwick or Rensselaerswick, uh, which it was p- called in those days when it was part of uh, New netherland and so uh, there were a number of people in nineteen twenty four who somehow realized that they were descendants of some of these original settlers in the Albany area. So they, um, they formed this organization, which uh, a few le- years later received a region's charter. So it is uh, considered an educational institution. And so in normal times pre-pandemic, we would have a number of uh, in-person meetings uh, throughout the year, where we would have speakers uh, about uh, different aspects of the uh, the history and uh, Albany's connection with the Netherlands. Um, during the pandemic, now though we we've gone virtual, um, so we're hoping soon, at some point in 2021, to be able to resume our in-person meetings and uh, every two years or so, we also publish, well, we call it the Dutch Settlers Society Yearbook. It comes out about every other year with um, articles written by uh, historians, both professional and amateur historians, Um, and I've written a couple of articles for some of the recent uh, volumes myself. And um, around the St. Nicholas uh, celebration in early December. We usually have a, a dinner then and celebrate New Ni- uh, Saint Nicholas Eve, which was also uh, it, it still is a very popular holiday in the Netherlands. So that's the Dutch Settler Society. The New Netherland Institute um, is all, it's a nonprofit organization that supports the uh, translation of the old Dutch documents that are here in uh the albany the, or, or i should say the state archives uh and and the uh cultural education center which is the same building where the the museum is uh so the New netherland Institute supports the translation of these documents and um, also disseminates uh the information, and we also have a an annual conference. Then, and I I really want to mention uh, Dr. Charles Gehring, whom you may have heard of, who has been for forty years translating these old Dutch documents that had been um, somewhat forgotten for many years, and so um, he's still working on that, and his uh, associate director. Janny Venema, a Dutch woman who worked with him for many years, has now retired and returned to the Netherlands.
0: Um... But yeah, yes, I did a podcast with Dr. Gehring. He's amazing, and I I had thought she, I had thought she was going to be taking over his work when he, if he ever did retire. But I didn't know she had gone back to the Netherlands. Yes, well, there's so much I learned from him, and also um, from reading Russell Shorto's book because so many of us grew up just learning about American history from the English point of view, Mm -hmm. since that's kind of what subsumed our culture and our educational system. And there was, you know, this entire Dutch heritage that preceded the English that kind of except for people like you, has been lost to most of us. You know, school children's learn about the pilgrims and um, this sort of um, laundered story of our country's founding rather than the earlier Dutch settlements. So I think it's wonderful that you've delved into that. And if you can just now kind of launch us onto this journey that you've become so familiar with, um, I'd love to hear about it. Um, Yes, certainly. But uh, before
1: before I do that, I would like to mention, well, you mentioned Russell Shorto. He is still um, actually a senior historian with the uh, New Netherland Institute. And yes, we have to give him credit also for his very popular book that uh, that made uh, kind of put the city at the center of the world uh, on the map, mm-hmm. so to speak. And so now there's a whole new generation of young scholars who are digging more and more into this history, and so it is, it is becoming more widely known now than over the last decade or so. Okay, but to get into the uh, this journey, then also, um, well, this took place in December, at December and January of 1633-34. and um, it was there were three young men who were given the assignment of investigating what was going on with the, the uh, beaver trade, and um, yes, you mentioned that one of these participants in the journey was um, considered a barber surgeon, which sounds like a very strange combination to us, but (laughs) uh, his his name was uh, Harman van den Bogart. And, you know, Bogart is is a well-known name from the 20th century also. Um, But, well, I guess you could say, well, why barber surgeon? Well, they both use they both used uh sharp instruments in their jobs <laughs> then and so um it was it is kind of uh, strange for us but um so these these three men they were employed by the West India company which had uh founded this um colony here in the Albany area and in the New York City area, also which was called New Amsterdam. So, um, this the other two people who went on the trip were also um, part of the team. Then uh, there was a man named Jeronimus de la Croix, but he returned to the Netherlands a few years after this expedition, and he brought a copy of this journal. Harman van den Bogart was the one who wrote the journal. He brought a copy back to the Netherlands so that the West India Company um, directors could learn the story of what was going on here. And the third man was Willem Thomason. And we don't know as much about him, but later he was involved with, uh, became master of a private ship then. That, uh, you know, at this time, Besides sailing back and forth between New Netherland and uh, the Netherlands, uh, there was also shipping and trading going on between here and the Netherlands and um, the Caribbean islands, um, which we used to, we would call the ABC islands, Aruba, Bonaire, and especially Curaçao. Curaçao was a big port, um, trading port at that time. Um, so they left, actually, on, um, they left, let's see the date, they left, oh, I have to look
0: at my notes. Yeah, take your time. I just, trying to picture what the, the area was like then, just all wilderness, all um, undeveloped Oh, yes. Yes. Uh,
1: and uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that then, too. But so the journal starts on actually it's December 11th, 1634. And um, Van der Bogart uh, describes their departure from Fort Orange. And he starts out the journal very dramatically with praise God above all and describes how they left then Fort Orange with five Mohawk guides. And um, these guides um, they traveled on foot. Um, sometimes they had to leave on their way several hours before dawn. And it must have been quite a grueling trip because it was all on foot. The uh, Native Americans did have some form of um, snowshoes, but the Dutchmen didn't. So, um, So sometimes, you know, they were floundering through like three feet of snow or wading in icy water that would freeze on their pant legs up to their knees. And at one point they were even abandoned by their guides and they had to catch up with them or find their own way to the next hunter's cabin. And this, this era, it was called the Little Ice Age because it was even colder than we think of in these days are, um, you know, our winters in the Northeast with a lot of snow. And so when they left out, when they started out, they did take some food with them, but the Mohawks also supplied them with venison, uh, you know, deer meat and other food, especially once they had uh, consumed their bread and cheese. And at one point, even I think they, the Mohawks' dogs ate some of their food, so they had to they had to uh, wait until they got to the next village to get fed. Then, and um, so the purpose of the trip was to investigate what was going on with the beaver trade, because um, there were other um, Iroquoian and Algonquian tribes that were also um, present in this area and around what is now northern New York and, of course, up into what is now Canada, Quebec, and so on. And some of those, um, they were called by the Dutch, uh, the Dutch called them the French Indians because they were more in contact with with the French up in the Quebec area. And so apparently it appeared that the, the French Indians were getting more money for their beaver pelts than um, from the French. Than the Dutch were from the Mohawks. So, and of course, the Mohawks they wanted to have an equitable um, payment for their trapping of all these animals. So. Um, so they they did have a lot of discussions with once when, when they got a hundred miles west. This, that was actually into the Oneida, the uh, territory. And if you think of the Turning Stone um, Casino and the Rome Utica area, that's as far west as they ended up. And so they did uh, negotiate there, and apparently. Um, they they did they were able to um, reach some agreement then with, with their Iroquois hosts, um, but and there are some a couple of instances that were kind of um, really stuck out in my mind uh, when I was reading this journal. On um, on one occasion or several occasions actually, the Dutchman, the Mohawks asked the Dutchmen to shoot off their guns, shouting something like, Ale Sarandade, which my pronunciation is probably way off, but it means fire again. So this suggests that the Iroquois had not yet acquired firearms. And o- other evidence in the historical record suggests that the Mohawks did not obtain guns until around 1640. So that was like eight years six or eight years after this trip. Um, There's also an incident where um, when they are in one of the, they're in the Oneida village and the Indians are having somewhat of a celebration or um, kind of a mock fight where they, they do maybe their training or their skirmishes and so on. And so the, Indians there. They, they in the course of the negotiations. Then, the Indians chanted the names of the five Mohawk tribes, which were, of course, the Mohawk, Oneida, Cayuga, Seneca, and I know Anundaga. And so, um, so this we think that this might be the the first recorded listing reference to the Iroquois Confederacy in, in the um, European um, historical records. So that that was one interesting point. And then we mentioned earlier that um, Van den Bogart was, uh, he was a, quote, barber surgeon. Well, um, on Christmas Eve, actually, he visited, he was taken along, to visit a sick man along with two native shamans or healers, and they performed a healing ceremony that van den Bogart witnessed. Um, and, and in early January, at a second occasion, he witnessed a ceremony of driving an evil spirit from a sick man. So the, this episode, it, it doesn't really indicate whether the patient recovered, but this kind of proves that um, it was actually, out of the three uh, travelers, it was Harman van den Bogart who actually wrote this journal, um, because he's the one who was the surgeon, so to speak. So, and as as far as the hospitality goes, yes, the the travelers were generally well-treated and really well-fed by both their Mohawk and Oneida hosts. On one occasion, there was some friction, but it got smoothed over um, because the the Dutchmen, ha- they had brought some small trading goods then, um, which the trade, giving of gifts in trade was uh, considered a way to cement the agreement at the time. <clears throat> so... It actually it's it's also an interesting to um,
0: to talk a little bit about the foods that they were given right yes think- I was hoping you would do that because I remember a number of years ago you had read this journal and developed your own sort of modern recipes yes. <laughs> that people could do with the holiday time based on those and you uh, wrote then about the you know, three sisters, the corn, beans, and squash. And really, that was such an advanced agricultural idea, too. And I looked up my notes from when you had first written, because I must have read through the journal myself, and you've just mentioned, um, you know, how they were taken in by these various villages as they went along. And I, too, was so struck with um, just... The goodwill that was extended to these foreigners, you know, um, in one point of the journal, he writes, had they had any malicious intentions, they could have easily grabbed us with their hands and killed us without much trouble. But instead, they accepted them. And that's just something, you know, especially in this era we're in now of kind of racial reckoning to, to think how... These first newcomers from Europe were not hostily treated by the people that had been here all along. So,
1: yes. So, yes. The the when the Dutch first came, there were they were greatly outnumbered, of course, by the Native Americans, and so for the most part. They, the Dutch got along although there were some skirmishes and more than skirmishes there were they called the peach wars the um, esopas wars and then kieft's war so yes there were some wars at at, uh, at certain points but the um, the Dutch wanted to keep a good relationship with the with the uh, indigenous people that they came into contact with because their primary purpose was trading and you you can't be trading goods back and forth when you're fighting, obviously. So, so there was, uh, for the most part, there was some goodwill then. And to, to go on to the, back to the food then, yes, they were fed like a cor- corn and bean stew, which I, kind of made up my own recipe for and mm-hmm. cornbread and sometimes they would bake beans or blueberries into or into the cornbread the cornbread was more like steamed rather than baked at by, by the um, Iroquois and they did not have they did not um, grow wheat so they did they, the mohawks, uh, the other Iroquois, they, they really, they did like the uh, wheat bread that the Dutch had. So they would trade back and forth for that too. And of course, they would have the wild turkey and uh, several varieties of squash, baked squash, and salmon. There was um, Atlantic salmon, not in the Hudson River, but up in the uh, St. Lawrence River so and and the tributaries of the saint lawrence river so so that they uh the iroquois had um had access to salmon and they would trap the salmon and dry it to so that they would have uh some source of protein uh during the winter so um the the trip then it took about um Six weeks altogether.
0: Do you know why they headed off in December? I mean, that seems like the worst time of year to take on an expedition into the wilderness. Oh, uh, you know, yes, yeah. They, the
1: thing, I, I know that question has been raised before, and I think that it was that was the trapping season. I think during the winter. I see. So huh. I, I think that's the answer to that.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering about your own personal journey with this. I mean, did you have a sense of resonance having this ancestor who had been here in the same era and had married a Mohawk and had Children, and I think I remember from something you said earlier. Some two of those children became translators, right? They were like, yes, uh, you know, a yeah. bridge, a bridge between cultures in that way,
1: right? I uh, mean, I just yes, well, I, and I've always felt a connection because um, my father, like I maybe I mentioned, my father was from Fort Plain in the Mohawk Valley. So I and um, now my brother and sister and I have inherited the family home there in Fort Plain. So we go there a lot. And, um, and yes, so the original ancestor married, uh, we know pretty much um, that he married a Mohawk woman and um, they had three or four, probably four children, I think. And, Two sons and two daughters are the ones that we know the most about. Well, the, the oldest son was one of the founders of the Schenectady uh, colony, the Schenectady village then in 1661. And he and his name was uh, Jacques, Jacques Venslike, and the two two sisters, um, Hylitia and Leah. All three of them actually, they... They had one foot in each culture because they probably spent their childhoods mostly in the in Kanadjiharry Village, Mohawk Village, and but they all married Dutch people then in the Schenectady area, and so because they were bilingual and basically bicultural, um, they all did work as um, interpreters and uh, the original. Settler, the original ancestor, also did that work, and was actually kind of a diplomat too, between the Dutch and the uh, the Native American tribes.
0: Well, I'm wondering, and maybe this is too much of a leap, if this kind of played out in your own life, because from what I know of your own life, you fell in love when you were in college. You were majoring in French and went to a French club and fell in love with a man from Africa, which is, you know, the other side of the world and a a very different culture. And you lived there, you know, raised your children on the Ivory Coast. And it seems like, you know, you too are somebody that bridged cultures, you know, and had um, raised children that were Just at least I feel I know your daughter a little bit. It has such rich experience. We've done a podcast with her, too. Our listeners might remember Elizabeth Zunon, who's an author and artist, children's books. And I just wonder, do you feel like that played out in your own life, too, this idea of bridging two cultures? Yes, I I think uh, it did. It
1: did in my own life. It kind of um, struck a chord, all the, the, the idea of being bilingual and bicultural and well, um, and living in two cultures. It, uh, it, it really gives you a much broader, broader view of the world, I think, and, and maybe being less judgmental of other cultures. Yeah. My daughter is still pretty much, um, bilingual and she still remembers her her childhood in cote d'ivoire cuz she was 12 years old when we came back here my son still understands quite a bit of french but he can't speak it fluently anymore really he was 6 when we 6 years old when we came back here so but uh, my husband and i we we just mix up english and french all the time at home <laughs> So when I'm lazy, if he speaks to me in French, and if I'm lazy, I'll answer him in English. But it's it's an opportunity for me to still keep my French skills up, too, though.
0: Oh, I know. When I called your house to set this up. There was the answering machine in French. And I just went, whoa, <laughs> this is so wonderful. And I remember talking to your husband. He speaks um, many languages. I mean, he speaks his tribal language. He speaks French. He speaks English. Doesn't he also know like German and Spanish? And I mean, uh, he's well, just...
1: I, I'm the one who speaks some German and some Dutch and we both oh, have wow. a smattering
0: of Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Talk about a multicultural household. That's just, that's just marvelous. Um, well, Alan, our time is to zip by. I don't, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners, either about the research that you've done or your just thoughts on life and what you've learned from this careful, careful reading of a 1600s journal? Well, um, I'm still trying to keep up
1: my Dutch skills and on my mother's side, uh, my my mother's parents emigrated from the Netherlands in 1911. And so my mother kept up a correspondence with um, some of her relatives there. And um, so in my generation, we are still in touch with some of the descendants of my grandparents. And And so one of the uh, my mother was given a, a music book, a book of Dutch songs years ago. And so there are his, some historical songs in there that I'm researching. So my, ne- my next um, research project is to link these songs that were written back in the sixteen, fifteen, and 1600s to commemorate some of the... Um, Incidents and events in the Dutch Eighty Years War for, uh, for independence from the Spanish Habsburg Empire, and so I'm trying to learn how to play a couple of those songs on the piano, and um, and I have a record that was my mother's that was one of uh, that has some of those songs so. Maybe my next uh, presentation for the Dutch Settlers Society might be something about all that—the musical, the music of the history.
0: Oh my gosh, Ellen, you are just full of surprises! <laughs> There's a whole new level. Learning yourself these songs on the piano—is that what you're doing? And then trying to to extract the his the. History of the War for Independence from the songs? Wow. Well, years ago,
1: my mother made me learn how to play the Dutch national anthem on the piano. So <laughs> so that when the Dutch relatives came to visit, she wanted me
0: to play that for them. So... So it's deep in you. Yes. it's part of who you are. The Dutch. How could you hum it for us? I don't know the Dutch national anthem. How does How does that go? Oh no, I won't try to sing it. No, okay, <laughs> no. but you can play it. It's in you. It's part of who you are.
1: And I would also like to mention um, Albany has a sister city connection with the Dutch city of Nijmegen, and. Um, there's a lot of history from the post-World War II era when that started. So um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, then. That's something else?
0: No, I was not familiar with that. Can you spell the name of that city just so people can grasp it and try to remember it? The sister city? Yes, it's, it's Nijmegen, N-I-J-M-E-G-E-N. And being a sister city with Albany, does that mean that there there are visits that go back and forth? Oh, yes. Or there's some there's kind of-
1: a, a Dutch woman named Anja, Anya Adrians. She has revived this um, sister city connection um, with a friendship, Albany Nijmegen. So you can look that up then. And okay. um, it started in, <clears throat> in uh, 1947. When Nijmegen had been um, bombed during the, at the end of World War II in 1947, the Dutch Settler Society and the mayor of Albany started a campaign to gather um, supplies to send to um, to Nijmegen to help them rebuild after the war. And so there was a, a shipload of uh, supplies, clothing, medicines. Uh, building materials that went to from Albany to Nijmegen in 1947, and um, and so that that the Dutch
0: Settler Society was involved in that at, at, at that time as well. Oh my! No, I hadn't even known that. I know you yourself, because you wrote about it for our paper, had visited Gelderland. That's and, right. Um, yeah,
1: Nijmegen is in the province of. Gelderland Oh, yeah, okay yeah.
0: Okay, so I didn't I knew that connection because it sounds almost like Gelderland Well, Gelderland is named
1: after Gelderland
0: Yeah Yeah. So that connection is very close to home for our oh, listeners yeah. because many of them are from Gelderland Right, right Oh, Alan, thank you so much This has just been so informative on so many levels Thank you